privilege to worship the Lord together in spirit and in truth. Amen? Well, let's stand together, and youth, you may be dismissed. And let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you're visiting with this morning, uh, we are studying through 1 Timothy as we make our way through the entire New Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And we are very excited about uh, finishing up this chapter and seeing what the Lord has for us. I know that there's a lot of specific things that he wants to instruct us in and encourage us with. And it's, it's interesting how he can do that so uniquely and make application to us that uh, even to, apart from someone saying something in their teaching, the Holy Spirit can say, this is how I want to apply this verse to your life. And he's very good to do that. So we're very excited what he has for us. By the way, on the water baptism coming up this Saturday, uh, you may ask yourself, uh, well, why should I go if I'm not getting baptized or I don't know anyone that's getting baptized Obviously, not everyone uh, can come and should come or whatever because things are going on. But consider this. If when your family has someone that is graduating or is is going through a significant event, you want to be there for them. You want to show your support. You want to encourage them and showing them that you care about them and you want to celebrate with them. And, And, you know, like we talked about last week, we're a family. And so uh, we want to stand with those that are getting baptized, that are making that uh, public profession, uh, that they've already been born again and so forth. And and also it's a great opportunity just to uh, be with the body of Christ one more time and to fellowship and to have an extended time. Those things don't come around as often as as we'd like. And so it's a great opportunity to take advantage of that. So uh, very excited about the water baptism, what the Lord's going to do, and just being able to spend time with one another and to see... uh, what it means to those people when they're standing there and having the rest of the family support them. And I know it's going to bless them a lot. So very excited about that. First Timothy chapter five, let's begin in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is, worth, is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the supremacy of it, the preeminence of it. We thank you, Lord, that we have it to turn to any time that we have need of it, Lord, and we're grateful that it doesn't change. We want to worship you now, Lord, in the study of your word. We're not interested in ritual. We're not interested in just having head knowledge. We're interested in engaging you through your word by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that as we sit here and as we learn from you, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher. We pray that our hearts would be open for you to speak to us anything that you want to speak to us about. We thank you that you want to speak to us, and we thank you that you want to use your word to make us more like Jesus. We ask that you would do that collectively as we study your word as a family, Lord, and we commit it to you. We pray you'd set this time aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We've been looking through this great book, uh, this letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. He was in his 30s, between 33 and 38 years old at this time. He's just spoken to him regarding proper relationships in the body of Christ. Not only do all of us need to be aware of how to properly have relationships with those in the body of Christ, but leaders are called to be an example in that way. And there's no way that a leader can properly minister to people if he doesn't know how to properly speak to them and and address them and uh, encourage them and all these things that are included in that calling. And so Paul is faithful to, as we saw him begin uh, last week, 
is to help young Timothy on how to navigate these uh, relationship challenges as he is obeying his calling in the Lord. So last week we saw him deal with how to speak to older men, how to deal with speaking to older women, uh, how, to, how to deal with speaking uh, to younger men, younger women, and he's going to uh, deal with today, as we're going to see, how to properly handle dealing with uh, elders. And then next week we'll see, Lord willing, he'll get into slaves and, you know, how we apply that today and so forth. So he's still dealing with relationships. So this morning he's going to deal with these leaders, these elders. He already has given the qualifications for these elders in uh, chapter 3, as we saw, as we went through that chapter verse by verse. Those qualifications uh, are non-negotiable. It wasn't up to Timothy to decide, as, as is the case with all these things, it wasn't up to Timothy to decide how he wanted to oversee things related to being the pastor of the church. The Lord had definite things in mind, specific things that are very hard to do at times, but that nevertheless shouldn't uh, stop him or any leader from leading the way that God has called uh, him or them to lead. And so these leaders aren't a dime a dozen back then. They're not a dime a dozen today. You can't create a leader. There have to be called to that. No matter how many, I mean, if we had our choice, we would have 20 times more leaders than we get to enjoy here. We can't make that happen. They have to be called to that. And so since leaders only exist because God calls them and nobody can make that happen, the body of Christ, including other leaders, including Timothy here, can't control how many there are in a church. And so they're valuable. God knows it. And so God gives Timothy some wise instruction related to how, how they should be uh, uh, ha- or treated within the body of Christ. Timothy would be desperately needing to know <laughs> as a young man dealing with all these different situations, dealing with all these different age groups, uh, but specifically other elders, how he's supposed to uh, treat them, how uh, he's they're supposed to function within the body of Christ. And so he's going to cover five major areas as we finish out this chapter. He's going to cover how they should be financially compensated uh, and how they should be protected against accusation. He's going to cover how to discipline leaders when they uh, are engaged in things that they shouldn't be engaged in and so forth. He's going to encourage Timothy on how to handle uh, you know, the, the, the ad, uh, administra- uh, administration of this discipline, how to handle it correctly. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And how to install new leaders. Now he's going to cover a few other little minor things, not any less important, but those are the main things that the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, uh, is covering uh, today as we look at these verses. And this is, all these things are important because God loves the leader. He loves the elder. But not just the elder, he loves the people over whom the leader has responsibility. And what we need to see as we approach this, these last few verses of chapter 5 is that they're interconnected. Because protecting the leader is protecting the people. And protecting the people is protecting the leader. They're inseparable. If you harm one, you hurt the other. And, and, and that's important for us to not miss because... We are interconnected as a family. Again, last week we started talking even more about how we're a family. And Paul's been using these, these, these terms that describe a family and, the, and the, the, the functional relationship that we're supposed to have with one another. Well, he's continuing it today. And so these leaders, how, do, how many of us know that how the leader of a home in a, fa- in a regular family affects the family? And how well the family's doing affects the head of the home, the father of, of the home. They're interconnected. You can't have, you know, the popular saying is, you know, if mama's happy, nobody's happy. Uh, well, it's true for fathers too. It's true for everybody in the family. If children are happy, nobody's happy because there's love. If you have a functional family, love is going on very uh, pervasively. And when one person's struggling or hurting or, or having issues, it affects everybody else. And so he's continuing that theme. And it's important for us to know that and also that whenever we're in a church, because I know that God moves his people around all over the place. And we're not assuming that everybody here, obviously, is going to be here uh, till the rapture or till you go on to be with the Lord. And so the Lord is going to maybe place us in other fellowships. And, and we need to know, and that's what partly why we're going through these verses or what the Lord's intention is for us going through these verses is that we're supposed to know what a healthy church is supposed to look like. We're supposed to know what the biblical standard is 
for, for everything that goes on in a church. And what it does in us as people that are part of the body is that it helps us to know whether or not the experience that we have in a local church is commensurate or lines up with what the Bible says. And if it is, it brings us comfort. If it doesn't, it, it, it starts a whole other chain of reaction of things that we're supposed to be engaged in related to prayer and bringing things up to leaders appropriately and all these things, even up to including potentially the Lord moving us on to another fellowship if that's his will for us. And so we need to know these things. And so we need to know, you may say, well, what, what's my life have to do with elders and how we treat them and all that? It's very important because how elders are treated affects you and how you're treated by the elders affects them. And we can't separate those two. Paul begins with the elders' compensation in verse 17. Look with me there. He says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So these leaders, the men about whom Paul spoke in chapter 3 when he gave these qualifications for them, if the church is able, they're supposed to be financially freed up to be able to give themselves over to the ministry and to serve God's people. Now, that may seem like an obvious thing, but there are groups, there are churches that teach, proclaim, and are very dogmatic about related to these things being wrong to engage in. That we should not, it's wrong to compensate pastors financially. And, and here, right here, I don't know how they get that. I mean, it's clear from right in this uh, passage and other passages that it's entirely appropriate to do that if that is possible. It's been the case all through the history of God's people that God has set leaders aside and, and helped them financially so that they could be freed up to serve the people of God. And so Paul says that it's not wrong, it should happen, and, and that uh, Timothy needs to keep this in, in mind. Now he says, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. Now, why does Paul single these people out? Why does he use the word especially that we see there in verse 17? Because he also says there, if you notice, he says that they labor. They labor in the word and doctrine. And so if, if these men are laboring in studying, you remember Acts chapter 6 where the practical needs of the widows, the scope of that was beyond the reach of the apostles being able to take care of those things personally. So the Holy Spirit had a solution. He raised up deacons to be able to take that load and share that load. And they said, we will give ourselves entirely to the ministry of the word and prayer. And so that, that requires time. And so we're called to, as leaders, to labor. If we're teachers, we're supposed to labor. We're supposed to work hard at preparing and so forth. And so he's, he's saying that it's very important for those people to be freed up, if possible, to be able to give themselves entirely over to that because it takes preparation. There's labor that's required to accurately divide the word of truth. It takes someone a lot of time to do that. You know, there's a story of a man named, Alex, I think it was McLaren, Alexander McLaren. He was a, it was a 19th century preacher. And he said he preferred to not study in his slippers. He preferred to study in his work boots to remind himself that he's engaged in labor when he studies to teach the people of God. But there's been many pastors and teachers in the past that have had incredible, you know, their work ethic has been amazing and very prevalent and well-known. G. Campbell Morgan used to read the, the, the book that he was going to teach or the passage that he was going to teach 70 times before he taught it. And I can't even come close to that. <laughs> but that just shows the seriousness of it. And today with, so, with the internet and websites and sermons.com and yes, there is a sermons.com and, and all these things that are, can be emailed to you and, and go on websites and all that, the temptation is to get lazier and lazier and lazier, to be engaged in all these other things and not put your rear end in that chair. And to not, first of all, be the first receiver of God's word and let it wash over you and do all the repenting <laughs> that needs to happen, which is pretty vast. Uh, and get everything right in your own life and heart so that you can have credibility and boldness on that day when you get up and teach the word of God. There are no shortcuts. G. Campbell Morgan said, sermonettes are for Christianettes. <laughs> you know, we need to have a, a full feeding of the word of God. Jesus equated the Apostle Peter's love for him 
by how he fed and tended the sheep. And, and he said it over and over. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. There can't be any shortcuts. The Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders, this same church that, uh, that Timothy is, is, is overseeing, he said to them at an earlier point in time, that I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And there'll be savage wolves that come in after my departure that will bring in their own agenda and, and they will see the sheep as a means to an end and they will be hirelings. They will, they will not be true shepherds and they won't love the people and they won't sacrifice. And, and, and he says, I warned you day and night that this would happen. And so he says, they labor in the word and doctrine. And he, and he says, those people need to be, especially those people, if possible, because not every church has that luxury. But if possible, take care of those people. And, and so he says they should be given double honor. Notice he uses that word, double honor. And what does double honor mean? Someone has said they heard someone one time talk about double honor being uh, double pay. You know, and they said, I used to totally disagree with that. But, you know, as I've gotten older in the Lord and... Uh, gotten more mature, maybe that should be the case, you know, and they was laughing and making a joke and everyone was laughing with them, unlike now. Uh, but uh, what does it really mean? <laughs> what does double honor mean? Does it mean that you're supposed to find the person that makes the most amount of money in the church and then pay the pastor double that? Absolutely not. But that's been taught before. That's been taught. I reject that. So what does it mean? I believe it means Double honor in the sense that you get honor. You're supposed to give honor to leaders in an appropriate way as you would anybody else. You know, in chapter 6, verse 1, he's going to tell the, the slaves to honor the masters and so forth. The honor that we normally think of. Give those people respect. But in addition to that kind of respect, you need to give them financially honor too. You need to help free them up. So I don't believe it's talking about double pay. I, talk, I believe it's talking about give them honor financially just as much as you give them honor with your heart and with your respect that you give them. And so that's what I believe he's saying. And notice in verse 18, he gives the biblical basis to Timothy for this command. He says in verse 18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. So Paul quotes two passages here. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, where he quotes that exact verse verbatim that he has in verse 18. And one of the things I love is that Paul has no problem here comparing elders to farm animals. <laughs> He's like, I have no problem comparing uh, leaders to oxen, and uh, don't be offended by that, but uh, it's a good comparison. You know, Paul is saying, it's a good comparison. And, and, he, and it spoke of this laboring that he's been speaking about. Oxen were laborers. Pastors are laborers in the word and in doctrine. And he's saying back then that, that you need to understand how things worked. And, he, and everybody, these, everybody that had this history with farming and the, you know, the, 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 this kind of culture would, would recognize this. These oxen were used to help these Israelite farmers and people in other parts of the world that were similar uh, with their crops. And they were used to break the husk away from the seed. And, and so they had various configurations of how they would have, use these animals, but it was used to get to the seed. And as the ox would work for long hours, you know, working hard, laboring, that's the theme here, the ox would get hungry. And so the ox would go and reach down and go, hey, check this out, there's seed here. I can eat this. And so the, the, the ox would, would partake of that on, on the field, that's the seed that's on the field there. And so that's what hit the, the ox's natural inclination. And so God told the Jews to, put, to not put a muzzle on the ox to prevent it from eating. Now, why would a Jew do that? Why would anybody do that? Why would you put a muzzle on an ox to keep it from eating some of the grain as you're farming? And so... I, why, I mean, you ask the question, why would God even have to say this? It seems like it's wasted. Obvious, it's obvious, and it's, it's you know, no, no-brainer. You don't keep the animal from eating grain. Well, there could be greedy farmers. They want every bit of that grain. They're going to sell it. They're going to make money. Taking shortcuts. You think if I just, that, that ox can eat a, lot of mo- eat a lot of money, so to speak, because that's a lot of grain that could be sold. 
And so they'd want to sell every last morsel of that seed. And so they would even do it to the neglect of the animal. And, and God knew that. And so he put that in the law. And so God came and said, don't do that. First of all, it's cruel. How would you like to work all day? All day long and not have a break and, and not being able to, to eat properly and not get strength and you're getting weak and so forth. That, you know, God cares about animals. We're told that he takes care of the ravens and he loves his creation. So he, he loved those, those, the oxen, of course. But also it hurts the farmer. Why does it hurt the farmer? It hurts the farmer because does the production go up if the oxen's weak because it's hungry or does it go down because it's weak and hungry? The production of that oxen goes down and it hurts the farmer. And so God knew that as well because God cared for the farmer. So he cared for the ox and he cared for the farmer. But both are interconnected. Just like I said, the elders interconnected with the people and the people are interconnected with the elder. And, and, and so God comes in and says, I want you to be careful about what you do related to how that ox, that elder, uh, is taken care of. And Timothy had to have this very clear in his mind. The elder is, a, is work equipment, in a sense, for the church, just like that ox was for the farmer. And if you mistreat him, not only is it cruel, but it's also hurtful to the church because the church will suffer. What happens when... A pastor who needs to be supported, and the church can support the pastor, and he's not supported. What happens? He gets distracted. He starts trying to work extra hours that he shouldn't work, and his study time goes down, and he starts taking shortcuts, and he stops studying, and he stops preparing himself for the ministry, and he stops preparing himself to be a blessing to the people. And the people end up suffering just like that farmer would suffer because that ox was muzzled and couldn't partake of the seed when it was hungry and it got weak and so will the elder. So it's really shooting ourselves in the foot. And so people on boards, I don't know if you've ever been on a church board, but people on boards can get just as greedy as any farmer had with with seed and say, we got to, you know, hold this back and be stingy and what are all these things to the neglect of this elder who's giving everything for the ministry and not realizing that the elder, is, the, the board member is shooting himself in the foot, shooting the church in the foot, so to speak. And so we have to be very, very careful. I don't know if any of us will ever be on the board of a church, but if you ever are, think of it from this perspective here. This is what God is saying. Don't let greed or wrong priorities withhold resources through your contribution on that board because you're going to hurt the elder, you're going to hurt the ministry because if he's distracted, discouraged, and exhausted and all these other things, the care of God's people will go down and they'll suffer. The whole ministry will suffer. Be generous. Seek to bless. They need to have what they need. And, and, and no, no, no extravagance, no, and we're not talking about Rolls Royces and, you know, 5,000 square foot homes or all, I mean, I drive an 88 truck and a 94 Camry. I'm not, we're not in it for the money whatsoever, but we don't need to be distracted. And so, but he adds another scripture there uh, from uh, Luke chapter 10. You, you may have it in red in your Bible because it's the words of the Lord Jesus, if you have that kind of Bible, but he says, the worker is worthy of his wages. And so it's Jesus himself, not just the law, not, not this principle doesn't carry over from the old covenant and so forth. It's not a principle merely from the old covenant. It's all through the scriptures. And the Lord Jesus said, the worker is worthy of his wages. So we need to heed that. By the way, in, in, as an aside, Paul is quoting here Luke, because this is from Luke chapter 10. Luke is a companion of Paul. Luke was writing the gospel of Luke during much of this time. And the Apostle Paul quotes Luke's writings as Scripture here. We need to see that. All of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Jesus promised or validated the Old Testament and promised the New Testament and said, all these things that I've said to you, I'll bring back to your remembrance. And Luke interviewed many people. very diligent. And, and so here Peter, or Paul rather, acknowledges that, that Luke's writing is Scripture. Now Paul moves on to the, the disciplining elders in verses 19 and 20, he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Now, this is very important. 
Notice he uses the word receive instead of believe in verse 19. He does not say, do not believe an accusation. He's one step before that. He's saying you shouldn't even receive it. And, and that's important for us to see. And the imagery here that he's bringing up, and he's going to continue this imagery, is uh, what we see in, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, and, and, and Matthew 18. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, he talks about that in, with court proceedings, basically in an arraignment where things are being decided whether or not someone can bring charges, uh, you have to have two or three witnesses. You have to face your accusers, and you have to be able to have witnesses that substantiate what you are saying. And so it was the case in Matthew 18. Jesus said, if you have a brother sins against you, go to him. If he doesn't listen, bring witnesses. If he doesn't listen then, but basically he doesn't repent then, then bring it before the church, and it becomes a public matter. All of these things that he's saying about elders, all it is is just he's wanting Timothy to be consistent with, with what's already been laid out. There's not separate, no separate standard here. He's just saying don't treat the elders any less than you would anyone else. You know, just because they oversee the things of, of the church and everything doesn't mean that they don't get to have witnesses uh, against them if there's something that someone's bringing before them. They get the very same treatment here. And what's interesting is that he uses the word witness here, which is the word martyr. We always think of martyrs as those that have died for their faith, which is true. But the word means witness. Martyr means witness. So they didn't become a martyr when they died. They died because they're already a martyr. They're already a witness. And, and so he's saying this is the case. It's always been the case in the law. And also what Jesus taught is that you have to have witnesses. Now, what, what do we normally hear when there's an accusation against an elder or anyone else? Everybody's saying Everybody's saying that so-and-so has done this. Everybody's saying that this person was guilty of this behavior. And when you kind of drill down on the facts of those things and you really get into what really was being said and who said it and start doing this little bit of investigation, it isn't, it isn't everybody. And it's usually only one person that's starting these little fires with their tongue, as James is going to talk about when we get there. And they're starting fires and, and you get into it, and there's not two or three witnesses. And it's a good searching thing for us as God's people. How many things have we believed about an elder where we have not personally witnessed something and had other people witness it with us, or there wasn't two or three witnesses that substantiated those facts? Because anything that falls short of that test, the Holy Spirit says through verse 19 that we should not even receive it to say nothing of believing it and that's important for us to know that protects us in in the body of Christ and it protects leaders because God knows that leaders need protection they're doing things that are very difficult and so there are those that would want to attack them and so God's bringing protection he's not bringing extra protection he's making sure that they do the protection that he set out for everybody in Matthew 18 and elsewhere it's important for us to see so he says, protect those elders. Don't receive, to say nothing, don't believe, don't receive unless there's witnesses. You know, and I just want to say quickly that the, the elder is at a disadvantage many times in situations because they know, they know information that has only come their way because of their place in the body of Christ and they receive that information under, in the context of confidentiality. So they are at a disadvantage because they can't defend themselves with a lot of, this, a lot of these facts and the circumstances and, the, and, and all this because they would break confidentiality. So, so many times they can't defend themselves. They're stuck because they're honoring the situation. They're honoring the people. They're fearing the Lord. They're honoring doing what's right and appropriate. And so God says, I want this standard to be the same with them as it is with everybody else. But there are people that will legitimately uh, need to be removed. And so he deals with that in verse 20. He says, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. First thing I want to call your attention to is the present tense verb sinning in verse 20. It's present tense in English, but it's also present tense in the Greek. And it means continuously sinning. And that's important for us to see. He doesn't say those who have sinned rebuke. Okay, that's a whole separate thing. And you can be disqualified as an elder by one sin. So I'm not saying that. 
But what he's dealing with here, related to bringing it before the whole church, is directly related to ing in that word sin, sinning. And what it's talking about is someone that is in deliberate, willful disobedience as an elder. They're unrepentant. Again, Matthew 18, that's the picture. And, and so elders are not free to just do whatever they want and, and not be, be relieved from the disciplinary cycle of Matthew 18. So they're, they're doing disqualifying type of sins in willful disobedience. They're not repenting. And so God says, okay, now you forced me now to bring this up publicly. Because he says, rebuke, Timothy, rebuke these in the presence of all that the rest may fear. And so he does that because, first of all, he wants the other elders to fear. Like, wow, I need to be extra careful. I mean, I was already careful, but I don't want that to happen to me. I mean, that's, it's healthy for us. But also for the entire church to fear. Because Matthew 18 is applicable for the whole church, first of all. Every person that's willful disobedience that is confronted properly, according to Matthew 18, they're at risk of having forcing the leaders to come and, and say this person is being unfortunately disfellowshipped from us they're under church discipline the goal is for restoration not to hurt them but they forced us to do this every person is subject to that but also leaders are subject to that but another way that they should fear is that if a leader has got to that place where they have willfully sinned and they're they are in willful disobedience to god and they're in rebellion They're no longer a safe leader in the body of Christ. And the rest of the body of Christ needs to know that so they won't fear them. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses by the Spirit talked about what qualifications have to be met for a false prophet. You have to say things that don't come to pass and not line up with the other things that have been revealed in Scripture. And it says that those that fail that test, you shouldn't fear them. In other words, you shouldn't respect their place. You shouldn't listen to what they say. You should stop following them as leaders. That's what Paul is getting at by the Spirit. Let everybody know who these people are. They're in willful disobedience. And so that you, everybody should fear that that won't happen to them. And also that the people shouldn't fear and respect these people any longer. Because they are unsafe guides. So, important for us to see. And all of us need to search our hearts. Is any of us in willful disobedience today? God doesn't want, us, doesn't want to have to discipline us. He wants us just to repent and so that he can continue to work through our lives in the way that he'd want to. But if you're in willful disobedience here, it's going to come out eventually and it's going to hurt you and, and it'll force us to bring this up. And any, anyone that's in willful disobedience right now, if you have no intention to repent, then, then leave. And that breaks my heart to say that. And I don't know of any specific information. I'm not thinking of anybody. But it's leaven to the body of Christ. It's like a cancer that affects everybody else. And so if you have no intention of repenting, when you're done getting beat up by the enemy, and it's sad and our hearts are hurt because of that possibility of, for your life, then come back. But it don't, don't engage in that, uh, in being among us, if you have no intention of repenting. Verse 21. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Paul charges him before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, the Father and Jesus and the elect angels. Why does he do that? Because they're watching. They're watching everything that happens in a church. That's the context of this letter is church. They watch everything and it matters to them. That's what every leader should be thinking of in every situation that goes on. What does God think of this? I don't care what man thinks of this. What does God think of this? I don't even care what I think of it. What's God think of this? Because God is watching. And he has to charge Timothy because Timothy wouldn't normally do this. No leader would. It's hard. No one likes confrontation. A leader dies a thousand deaths having to confront someone in a serious way like this. But they have to. And he says, I'm charging you to do it. Everybody's watching. That's important. And you need to observe these things, all of them, not just some of them, without prejudice. Now, prejudice means to pre-decide here in the original language. You're pre-deciding who you should talk to, who you shouldn't to talk to. 
We shouldn't talk to. So if, if you're thinking in your mind, okay, if so-and-so ever were in this situation, probably wouldn't say that because of who they are or whatever. He's saying, no, don't do that. doesn't matter who it is. You need to not show partiality. God doesn't show partiality. And, and he knows that, that, that we shouldn't show partiality because we represent him. And leaders should never, ever, ever show partiality. Pastor Chuck Smith, the one that the Holy Spirit used to start the Calvary Chapel movement back in the 60s. One time he was given a million dollar check. This guy just wrote out this million dollar check. I don't know if it was real. I'm sure it was. You're not going to go to Pastor Chuck and write something that bounces as high as a basketball. (laughs) But he wrote a million dollar check. And Pastor Chuck looked at it, prayed, (laughs) because you know you would have to pray, right? Prayed and gave it back to him and said, Don't be offended, but I don't need to know that you're giving a million dollars to this church. If you have on your heart to give this, and the Holy Spirit's directing you to give it, give it in the offering where I don't see who gives what. Or give, and I can't do cash because you can't drop a suitcase in the the offering bag. (laughs) But just do it to where I don't know. Because once I give it back to you, I won't know if you've done it or not. Because I don't want anything to get in the way of me being able to serve without partiality you know and I you guys know this I've said it before I don't know who gives what I don't look at any of those things I don't know who gives and who doesn't give I don't want anything getting in the way of me being able to serve I don't want anything getting in my mind about well they serve they give less so I'm going to serve less or they give more I'm going or whatever I don't want that even entering my mind but showing partiality can affect leaders with their choices of leaders because they have a good friend and so they're going to allow this person to serve. They haven't prayed about it. Uh, they haven't sought the Lord on it. But because they're a close friend, then they can automatically serve. That's, that's showing partiality. Or their children. There's nepotism that goes on. And, and pastors have their sons take over uh, the pastorate when they retire. I'm not saying that's wrong. And I'm definitely not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't lead that way. But we shouldn't assume that that should happen just because uh, our children, you know... Uh, our, our, our children and, and so forth, they understand the ministry and all that. The Lord may have a totally different plan that's entirely different than what we thought. And it's, we have to be extra careful with those that we're closer to because we can show favoritism. We can see that in our homes with our children. Can't show favoritism in our home in, in any way. But we can, we can be softer on our, our children and we can be softer on certain people in ministry because of our relationship with them and God says no I, I just think of Eli and I think of in the Old Testament and how he didn't discipline his sons how he should have and people paid the price including notwithstanding his, his children paid the price for that because he didn't stand up and be the man of God in his home and so that could be the case in the church because it was the case in the church in that instance And so we have to be very careful. I can't even show partiality towards myself. Sometimes people are shocked when the leaders are cleaning the bathrooms and doing all these other things that they they sometimes see other people do in other churches except the leaders. And that shouldn't shock people because a leader is not above doing anything. And Jesus showed us that. He modeled that by washing the disciples' feet. Here he is, the the God of the universe who created everything and and everything just came into existence. And here he is, washing feet, the lowest thing that any servant in a home would do. The lowest servant would wash the feet of, of visitors that came in that had sandals and had dusty feet. The lowest servant. Peter was offended. Said, no, no, you can't, you're not gonna wash my, you can wash everyone else's feet, not my feet. And then, of course, when he says, you have no part of me, if I don't do it, he's, oh, wash my whole body. Of course, he's like so extreme one way or the other. That's why I relate so well to him. But we can show partiality for ourselves. We can prefer ourselves as leaders, as anybody. We have to be careful that we apply the same standard to our lives as uh, we apply to anybody else. And so God hates partiality. We need to be faithful. We need to be uh, careful about who we uh, you know administer these things so these Timothy needed to not focus on who they were what their background was who their father was where they were in the community it doesn't matter and and so that's very important for for us to see he says in verse 22 do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins keep yourself pure 
And this, I believe, still continue on showing partiality here. Because you would be tempted to put, lay hand on someone quickly, too quickly, if you were showing partiality with them. And so it doesn't matter if there's needs. You don't rush things. It doesn't matter if you're going to lose someone. Oh, if we don't put them in leadership, we're going to lose them. But whose church is it? Is it Jesus' church or is it your church? Are you building the church or is Jesus building the church? Well, you know, we've got to provide motivation for them. We've got to keep them motivated, so we're going to put them in this certain area of ministry. No, Paul wrote to Timothy, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That already has to be there. Timothy couldn't provide it. No man could provide that. That's between them and the Holy Spirit. Ministry isn't rehab. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's rehab. God rehabs us. But we can't be putting people in positions that uh, we shouldn't because of any other reason but because God's called them and it's the right time. It doesn't matter if they want to be put in a position. They have to be put in that position because God's saying that. And because also he isn't the one that's in charge of how things run in the church. It doesn't matter if a person used to be one. It, 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 the Holy Spirit's overseeing things. You can't show partiality. And he says, be careful and to wait. Because all these things in chapter 3 that we covered, all these character traits, all of them for the elder are character, except one which is gifting, the gift of teaching. And Timothy couldn't provide any of those things. He couldn't make any of those things happen. They happen between them the, the person and the Lord, as Timothy teaches the word and loves people and disciples, they happen independently of his direct trying to make those things happen. And so he was called to do that. He was called to watch for these things. But you can't see those things overnight. If it was just gifting or charisma, we could put something, someone in a position and be able to see it right away if they have that or not. But you can't see character right away. Character needs to be seen over time. And he says, watch their marriages, watch their family. Do they rule their house well? Are they greedy for money? All those things that God puts a premium on that many times in the church we don't put a premium on. Oh, he has to have a great pedigree and a seminary degree and has to be super charismatic and all these things. And God doesn't say those things are important at all compared to the other things, the character things. Those things can't just happen right away. So we have to be very, very careful. He says, nor share in other people's sins. And that's true generally. Timothy shouldn't be brought in as he's ministering to people who are engaged in in, uh, sinful behavior. He can't be drawn into those things and sucked in. But I believe it's also talking about if you lay hands on someone suddenly and hastily, any damage they do to the body of Christ, you are, Timothy, you are partly at fault because you rushed things. And in that way, you're sharing in people's sins and you're partly accountable for that. He says, keep yourself pure. Leaders need to be, uh, live a pure life, just like every Christian is supposed to live a pure life. And then he says something that people are baffled by in verse 23. He says, no, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Because what baffles them is, why is that here? He's talking about elders He's talking about all these things. And then he says this little thing about helping Timothy with his health issues. And it could be because he mentions keep yourself pure. And that sets his mind to pure water versus not pure water. Or I think it's more likely that there was probably this pressure in that area to completely abstain altogether in any circumstance, even medicinal, from alcohol. Because remember, he, the, the, the Gnostics were already saying don't marry. And don't engage, you know, with eating certain types of food. It was abstinence in things that God hasn't called us to abstain in. And so it's very possible that they said in that culture, it, even for, a, a, you know, for medicinal purposes, you are not to take it in any way whatsoever. And he says, it's okay, Timothy. Don't just drink only water. Timothy was from Lystra. He drank from the Lystra well all his life. And now he's like a missionary going to all these places. He's drinking from all these different wells. There's different bugs in these different wells that are not uh, <laughs> lining up with his digestive system very well. So Paul says, drink a little wine. That alcohol will kill those bugs. Do, be very, and I love how God's so practical here because he says, do this. And notice he doesn't say, get drunk on a, on a lot of wine for, for your problem's sake. He says, use a little wine for your stomach's sake. There's no license here for drunkenness or any of those things. This is for medicinal purposes. One thing I do want to highlight at the end of verse 23, he says, for your frequent infirmities. 
Paul did miracles, remember? God used him to do miracles. He was healing people. He was, his sweat bands were used to heal people. He doesn't say to Timothy, sorry, I'm, the, I'm this man that does miracles all the time. You just are failing in your faith here. You need to have more faith for these frequent infirmities, and you're, you're, failing, you're failing God here. No. He doesn't say to Timothy, you need to have a positive confession that you're well because your symptoms are lying symptoms from the devil. He doesn't say that either. He says you're having frequent infirmities. That's reality for you. And these are very practical things that are in your life that you need to take advantage of. Every good and perfect gift is from above. God heals in many different ways. He can heal through medicinal wine in our stomachs. He can heal through doctors. He can heal through medication. It's not a lack of faith if we do something from a physical standpoint, a practical standpoint, uh, for God to use in our lives. He's the one that has led society to have doctors and all those things. And so he gets the glory ultimately. But Paul doesn't say there's a lack of positive confession or a lack of faith or any of these things. He says, in fact, Paul would have been making a negative confession <laughs> if he, by just saying fi- frequent infirmities. But he doesn't have a problem with that. So that's false teaching. Verse 24. He says, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. And those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. What he's doing is helping Timothy regarding laying on of hands still. Because he says, just like some men's sins are clearly evident, and even with some elders, you'll have to take them out if they're deliberately sinning, and those sins precede them to judgment, there are other sins that follow later that people don't see right away, that come to surface eventually. Just like that's true, it's true for good works. If a man is called to be an elder, sometimes those, that character and that gifting are very evident, and people can see. And, and we're hoping that any time that, that uh, an elder is prayed for in, in our midst, that everyone would say, oh, I saw that coming a long time ago. That's what we want. We want it to make sense to everybody, for the Holy Spirit to have that ring true in everybody's hearts, that God truly is raising up that person. And anybody and everybody can see they have that calling, they have that heart, they have those gifts, they have that character. That's what we want. But there are some people that it just doesn't really stand out right away. That no one would look at that person and go, wow, that person is called to be an elder because of this, this, and this. I just don't truly see it so in a, in a flamboyant way or in an obvious way. And I believe what Paul's saying to Timothy here is that um, eventually those things are going to come forth to where other people are going to see it, including yourself. And I think he's telling Timothy, don't pass over people. Because they're not at the front, and they're not super charismatic, and they're not, they're, they're, their ministry and their gifts aren't so amazingly obvious that everybody is seeing it right away. Those things are going to come forth in other people that you wouldn't expect. Be watching very closely. Maybe you're here today, and you sense that you have a calling to be an elder, to be a leader in the body of Christ, and you've gotten passed over or, or, or whatever. Now, you may not be called to that. And God may show you that later. You bet you may be called to that. And and God says here that leaders are supposed to be prayerful and careful to not miss those people, to be looking very closely, not just for the ones that stand out, that are obvious, but to look at ones that are not so clear at the moment, but that later on they see this fruit come forth from their lives and they see this person really is called to lead uh, God's people. And so very good instruction here. Don't just lay hands on anybody. Be careful. And there is proper discipline. And there is a proper way to discipline elders. And they shouldn't be muzzled. They should be freed up to care for God's people because it is cruel. And greed shouldn't be a part of the equation related to what they should be uh, compensated for. So it's good for us. God wants us to sense that where he's placed us in the body of Christ is a biblical church. That the Bible is the standard. Because when people are using partiality and favoritism and all that, people walk away discouraged. And they go, well, the Bible isn't the standard there. It's who you know. And it's a good old boy network, so to speak. And, and they just do things how they think they should do them, apart from what God's word says. God doesn't want that for any of us. He wants all of us to have a great peace about where he's placed us. 
It's our aim here to be 100% biblical, having the Bible as the standard. That's why we go through it every verse. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every verse, all Scripture. So we're going to go through every bit of it. And we're going to see things that are hard to take sometimes for ourselves. It's going to be hard to take for our church. Some very exhortive things. But it's the most loving thing for God to, t- to tell us what we need to hear so that we can be f- further conformed into the image of his Son. And if we're willing to submit to that and say, this is your church, Lord. You want it to be what you want it to be. We are not free to make it into something that we want it to be. It's not optional for us. You said you would build it. Help us to get out of the way. Help us to not try to help you out. And let us just obey what your word says and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the leaders in the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you've set things up to where we can be an encouragement to them by our prayers, by supporting them, by obeying what you've called us to obey, making their role easier. Lord, help us, Lord, as your people to bless your leaders and to pour into them and and support them and be an encouragement. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement that we've received here by your people. Thank you, Lord, for the people that you have called to to call this their home. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that I've received. Thank you, Lord, for the support that I've received as well. And Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that your church, you've thought of everything. There's nothing that you've left out. And as you continue to encourage us to function as a family, I pray that we'd be the most functional family ever by your grace and by your power. Thank you for who you've brought here. We thank you that, that each one of the gifts represented here, Lord, that your design is to have those gifts be used so that we can all be built up and strengthened. And we thank you for your discipleship that you bring through your word. We thank you, Lord, that you want to make us whole so we can go out and preach your gospel and have the lost be found so that we can bring them back here to be discipled. It was beautiful how you set things up. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.